0: But as we get there, I want to remember where we studied last week, because um, one of the biggest conversions of all of church history has happened. It's Saul of Tarsus, and we know him as the Apostle Paul, but Saul of Tarsus was a man who breathed out violent threats against Christians before it was cool, if that is what you want to call it, before anyone else was persecuting Christians, the first persecutors of the church were actually um, the Jewish leaders. And if you think about it, it makes sense because those were the ones that um, hated Jesus and they persecuted Jesus himself. And Jesus said that anybody that persecutes you as a Christian, uh, be not worried because uh, they persecuted Jesus before they persecuted you. And so Saul, last week as we looked at it, was confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Saul was a very zealous religious man, and the way that God approached him was no longer in a subtle way. He met him as Saul was headed up to a place called Damascus. Saul was on the way to persecute and bind up Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they would be brought before the Sanhedrin, which was just like a a council in Jerusalem that basically was uh, built up of religious leaders in uh, Jerusalem and as as he was bringing them back, or he, as he was going to Damascus to basically uh, get these Christians to drag them out of their homes, to drag them back to Jerusalem, to be put on trial, to be put to death like the, uh, Stephen had been, um, God met them met him on the road. So Jesus confronted, he pursued Saul. Now, we often think that God loves those who love God. But it seems to me that in the passage that we read last week, that God pursues those who are sinful and against God. God reaches out to those that are diametrically opposed to his purposes. He reaches out to sinners. And I think that's interesting because oftentimes we think, well, God loves us because we love him. But the reality is is that God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us because that's who he is. That's what what he is. It's who he is. It's what he does because of that. And so, Jesus confronted Saul on the way to Damascus while he was getting ready to go and threaten and even put people up for murder. Not only any people, but God's people themselves. And so Jesus confronted him while he was threatening and persecuting his disciples, his children. Now think about it. If someone was threatening your kids, would you love them? Would you pursue them? Would you try to uh, make them your own children? Would you try to adopt them? No. No. You'd say, hey, I'm going to take care of you. Stop messing with mine. But God doesn't say that. He says, you know what? I see in you that um, your life is misguided. And so what I want to do is I want to pursue you, show you your, your faults, what you're doing. You're sinning against me and my people. And I want to make you one of us. No longer against us, but one of us. And so God does this for Saul while he is persecuting his own. And notice that Saul surrendered to Jesus. His first response to God speaking to him for the first time, because Saul thought he, he was a religious man. He thought he was pursuing God in his religion. But when God really revealed himself to Saul, the first reaction is he's completely afraid and he's trembling. He was completely humbled. And so Saul's first response was fear and trembling, at which point he asked the Lord, number one, who are you? And number two, what do you want me to do? When anyone has a true experience where God meets them, wherever they're at in the middle of their life, what happens is our first response should be, who are you? Number two, what do you want me to do? And that's where he's at. He surrenders to Jesus. He goes, I recognize that I've been persecuting your people and that you call it me persecuting you. Because he didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? Anytime that anybody does anything against God's people, God takes it very personally, like we would as parents. And so he, he, he at this point recognizes his, his failure, his faults, and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then Saul obeyed. He listened to Jesus. He trusted what he told him to do. And the ev- evidence that Saul trusted Jesus was that he obeyed what Jesus instructed him to do. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians God humbled him. He blinded him physically to show him that he was blind spiritually. And then he told him, I want you to go to Damascus and I want you to wait there. And when he told him to do that, he was waiting. And for three days, Saul didn't eat anything. He didn't drink anything. He was just complete. He was so afraid. He couldn't physically. He wasn't hungry. He was afraid. And we talked about last week how it's like when you get in trouble by your parents and they send you to your room and you're like, not sure what the punishment's going to be. And so you're just sitting there going, oh man, I hope, what's going to happen? And as he's waiting there, God speaks to his servant Ananias, who is in Damascus. And he says, I want you to go to Saul and I want you to tell him, number one, that he's forgiven. I want you to pray for him, that his sight would be restored. And I want you to pray for him that he would receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Ananias knew why Saul was coming to Damascus. He was going to take anybody who, Follow Jesus and drag them out and drag them to Jerusalem. So Ananias is going, you really want me to go to this guy? He's, he came here to murder your children. He came here to persecute my people. And I'm going to go to him and pray for him? He, he doesn't ever ask that question. He just obeys and he goes. And he's the first person to get to basically introduce and welcome Saul into the family of God. He calls him Brother Saul. And then he prays that the Lord would fill him with his Holy Spirit, and he's healed of his blindness. So Paul later refers to this receiving of the Holy Spirit. I think we could very easily say, well, he gave him sight back. But we got to remember that God said, I want you to pray for him to receive the Holy Spirit. So Paul was recognizing that not only was he forgiven, his sight was restored, but also he, when God gives his spirit, it's his way of showing him, you're now mine. You're now my child. And I say that because in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul writes to the Roman believers, he says, We did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. When he gives us his Holy Spirit, he changes our heart, and now we're no longer a child of, of, you know, wrath. We're no longer underneath, you know, the sin that caused death. We're no longer uh, under bondage. Of sin, but now we're freed up. We're children of God. We've been adopted into the family of God as Christians, and so Paul knew that he had lived a life of sin. He had a rec- he had a right understanding of who he was before Christ, and he had a proper perspective on who he was when he was in charge of his own life. He was a sinful man, and now that he recognizes this, his old life, he allows to, God to put it to death, and he's raised in Christ. Through Jesus's payment for his sins, and he's been forgiven, he's been set free. He now has more than a list of dos and don'ts to follow, like the law gave him, but he has a relationship with God, the creator of heaven and earth, and not only that, but now God is his heavenly Father. So now he doesn't have to pursue God and try to be righteous. His righteousness has been given to him freely. If he has a bad day, it's okay. He's forgiven. Now at the same time, that doesn't mean that he doesn't need to repent. But it means that his right relationship with God no longer depends on him doing things exactly right every moment of the day. He has the opportunity to repent and be forgiven because of God's righteousness, because of Jesus's finished work. So for him to call God father and to recognize that, no Jewish person would ever be presumptive enough to say, well, God can be my father. Every Jewish person would say, God is holy. He can't. You know, no man can get close to him except for the high priest. But now Paul recognizes not only is God his father, but he's been adopted into the family of God. And so Saul is now a free man. He's free from religion. He's free from hatred and violence. But what we'll see is that though Saul has been changed by the touch of God, it does not change the person that God has originally made him. Saul is a very zealous man. When he says he's involved in something, he's all in or is not in at all. And we see that because Saul, his whole life is going to take a 180. When he was once pursuing Christians to kill them, to put them to death on trial, he's going to Damascus and the Lord sends him to Damascus anyway. But now that he's received Jesus's forgiveness, his life goal will not be death to all Christians, but he's going to go there to encourage and preach the gospel to all those who are not Christians. So once once was a, a ministry of death and violence, is now going to be a ministry of peace and and good news so we see that paul he's all in as a pharisee he was before and what led him to dragging off and putting in chains anyone who would call on christ now paul has a new mission that he surrendered his life to following uh, jesus example of proclaiming peace and forgiveness of sin to the world paul's going to pursue his passion of following jesus just as hard, if not even harder than he ever lived for any worldly pursuit. And I believe, and I've experienced this in my own life, that for any Christian to experience abundant life, the abundant life that Jesus talks about, we have to pursue God's purpose for our life just as hard, if not harder, than we ever pursued our own earthly goals, our own earthly desires. And I think sometimes we... Instead, we don't. We get kind of this idea that if I add Jesus to my life, then my life will be all that it was ever supposed to be. But if we just add Jesus to all of our other stuff that we got going on, we have a wrong idea of what God's called us to. He says, if anyone would follow after me, he would lay down his life, deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. And I think it's funny because sometimes we think, well, that means that I won't be able to do anything except for go to church the rest of my life and just be like a monk. No, that doesn't change necessarily that, but what it does is it changes the reason for why we do everything. It changes the focus, changes the direction for why we do what we do. I still have a job where I work in the secular market. I, I work at U.S. Tool. That doesn't, make, that doesn't mean that I've got to quit my job and just be a pastor that means that in my job I'm no longer doing it just to earn money but I'm doing it as to bring glory to God. I'm doing it to provide for my family to glorify God. And it also means that the reason that I'm there is not just for a paycheck but I'm also there for the people that are there. I'm there to meet them, to tell them about Jesus if given the opportunity. And the amazing part about that is is I no longer get bummed out when I have a bad day at work because even though I didn't get as much done as I would have liked to, I'm not there just for that. Or when my job is kind of a bummer sometimes, because jobs aren't always fun. It's called work, and it is a four-letter word, work. Um, that means that I'm there for more than just quoting tools or whatever it is that you do at work. There's more meaning to it than just that. If it's just work, then we can go work at McDonald's. or we can go, You know, we, we can do any job that exists for the glory of God. I've seen lots of people that are very joyful in their jobs. I actually have heard of one guy that lives in California that my pastor knows, and he's been offered positions in churches to be a pastor, to be a worship leader, like, hey, whatever you want to do, come and do it. He goes, I reach more people that don't know Jesus as a deliverer of bunny bread than I would ever inside the church walls. And that's what God's called me to do. And he's an evangelist. He delivers bread for the glory of God, and every person he sees, he sees a bunch, He talks to him about Jesus. So Paul is recognizing that my calling is gonna be something different than I thought it was. It's not about showing the world how righteous I am, but it's about proclaiming to the world how righteous that Jesus is. So it's no longer about me, it's about Jesus. And so Paul, after receiving forgiveness and after experiencing the touch of God from Ananias He's now encouraged to pursue Jesus with all the zeal, with all the wisdom, with all the strength that he's wanted to apart from Jesus. He was trying to do that and now he's got a new purpose and he wants to know Jesus, this Jesus that's willing to forgive him even though he was persecuting and and trying to kill those that followed him. He was there the day that Stephen was stoned to death and he condoned it. He was happy that Stephen was stoned to death because he was following Jesus and now... He's following Jesus himself and he wants to know Jesus. He wants to know the love of Christ and he's experienced it in a different way. So we see in verse 19, as we begin this week, when he had received food, he was strengthened and then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Saul was strengthened here, it says. Number one, he was no longer super afraid. He recognized the love of God and that he received it and that it was undeserving of it. Because he recognized that, he had peace, and he was ready to eat again. So he was strengthened physically, but it also says there that he spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So he experienced for the first time fellowship with other believers. So we're strengthened physically by our daily bread that God provides, and we're also strengthened by the Word of God, but we're also strengthened by being with people who are like-minded. And Saul was no uh, different in that. He needed fellowship with other believers. So verse twenty says immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. So his message has changed. He's no longer preaching that you have to do works, but he's he's preaching that uh, Christ is uh, that the Christ that he is the Son of God. And then all who heard were amazed and said, "Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And he's come here for that purpose so that he might bring them." Bound to chief priests? They knew why Saul had come to Damascus. They knew that he had come to drag people back to Jerusalem and basically have them put to trial. So Saul is a new man. And his message changed because of that. He was no longer the same cat. It says there immediately he preached that Christ was the son of God. Before he taught that you could get to heaven by doing more and by earning it. But now he preaches that Jesus is the only way. But not only did his message change, but his reputation changed. His reputation was, he's coming here to persecute Christians. And now his reputation has become, he's preaching that Jesus is the way to salvation. So what Saul was doing, his message changed and what he did change. And so because of that, all those that heard what he was saying, they did a double take. They're like, wait a minute, isn't this the guy that was just blaspheming and saying Jesus wasn't God? Isn't this the guy that everyone knows about destroys Christians and drags men and women out of their homes for following Jesus? What's going on with this guy? So Saul's 180, his life change is more than just words. It's noticeable. Even by those who used to be his enemies. Even Christians are like, I don't know about this. You know, this guy was pretty rough, and now he's claiming to be a Christian. And we're going to see in a little bit, many of the Christians were scared to even accept him because of his such rapid life change. Verse 22 says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, somewhere in this section, I'm not exactly sure where, but there's kind of a, a section that we miss out on. Now, Luke is no doubt, he's, he's written down all the truths chronologically, but he's left out what I believe to be a very important part of Saul's walk with Jesus. Because <clears throat> Saul, it seems, he got saved and then he started preaching and had a powerful ministry. But Saul had a time where he actually just took some quiet time away from everything to get to know Jesus himself. Oftentimes we We hear of people getting saved and then we see them uh, go out and start getting involved in ministry. But in order for us to be the most useful for Jesus, we have to spend time with them. Even in the the gospel accounts, we see Jesus, he called men that were fishermen, that were tent makers. He, He called different men to, number one, be with him and then to be sent by him. But oftentimes we think, okay, I'm saved. I need to get to work. But what Jesus says is, I want you to spend time with me, get to know what I have called you to, get to know who I am, and then I will send you. And that's what he's doing here. So <clears throat> Paul had this time that he refers to in Galatians chapter 1. It goes or Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then Galatians. And in Acts or excuse me, in Galatians chapter 1, he describes what he used to be and then what he did and then how God used him after that. So in Galatians chapter 1 verse 11, he writes, he says, "But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which I excuse me, which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ." So he's telling these uh galatians he's saying look i i received the gospel i'm a partaker i'm not above it i need jesus for salvation just as much as you do i'm not preaching a gospel that is only for the lowly uh it's for me too and i'm just as lowly but he's saying this isn't a a message that i got from some person that just showed up and said hey you need to preach this this isn't man's ideas this is something that god revealed to me personally And he knows that because he's thinking back to what we studied last week when God basically knocked him down on his butt on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you against me, Saul? And so he says, I neither received this gospel from man, nor was I taught it from man, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. He makes sure to tell them, look, I'm really not that great of a guy. Before Jesus, I was trying to destroy the church of Christ. I was trying to destroy anyone who called on his name. Verse 14, And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But, and I always love that in scripture, but God. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, God who created me, when it pleased him, he called me through his grace. He imparted to me the truth through his grace. Do you know what grace is? It's God's gifts to us that we don't deserve. When God opened Saul's eyes, it wasn't because because Saul deserved it. It was according to God's grace. It was a gift free. So he says, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So it seems to me from reading this testimony from Paul himself, before I ever went and preached, I conferred not with Peter the apostle or with John, Jesus revealed himself to me on the road to Damascus. So I figured it best to go and talk to Jesus about what he's called me to and to tell me more about this gospel. I needed time with him to reflect upon what he had to say about himself. And so I did so. And it says there that he went to Arabia and the time seems to be, verse 18, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for 15 days. So For three years from his salvation to the time that he began to preach, there's this gap that we don't see in the book of Acts, basically where he took some quiet time away from everything to go, okay, so far in my life I've persecuted, I've persevered towards following this Jewish faith, and it was all supposed to point to Christ, and I missed it. So I need to go back and reread all these passages that I thought I knew, because Paul knew the Old Testament better than anybody that that was walking at that time, he was well known for knowing scripture. It wasn't that he hadn't spent time in the Bible. It was that he had missed the God that was revealing himself in the Bible. So if you read scripture and you miss Jesus, you're missing the point. And so Saul said, if I missed the point and I knew the scriptures, I really need to get away from all that I know and spend some time just with him and say, Lord, I thought I knew you. Please bring me to a place where I do know you. Because I've, I've obviously come to Scripture with some assumptions that were wrong. I've come with my own traditions in mind. And because of that, it's, it's distracted me from what's really supposed to be taught in Scripture. Show me. And so now that Saul has the Holy Spirit, he just departs from all that he knows and he spends some time in quiet. And I think oftentimes we forget that we need that. In order to know, number one, who we are, to have proper perspective about who we are and what God has called us to, we need to spend time with Jesus. And so he does that. He models that. And he spends this time not surrounded even by Peter or any of the apostles. He spends it with just the Lord Jesus. Getting rid, uh, getting rid of those distractions. Now I don't know about you guys, but my life is full of distractions. Um, good ones and bad ones. You know, my wife and my child are wonderful. But they can be distractions. Not because they're trying to be. It's just part of living with other people. There's distractions. My job can be a distraction. Does that mean I can just check out in those three areas of my life? Don't be around my kid. Don't be around my wife. Just avoid my job. No. It means that I need to purpose, cut out time from my life. That's my time. You know, We all like our time to spend with Jesus. I need it just as much as anybody else does. Sometimes I think I need it more. I don't think that God has me teaching the Bible because I'm something great. I think he has me teaching the Bible because he, need, he knows I need to be in it more. And so as we spend time with the Lord, we'll have proper perspective like Paul did. We'll know who we are. We'll know what Christ has done for us. And then we'll have a message to share. And we'll see that here. Paul has a message to share. In verse 22, it says, Saul increased all the more in strength. He confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So we see there that Paul recognized what he wrote in Ephesians chapter two verse ten. It says there, "For we are God's workmanship, we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." If we do not take time away from everything else to spend with Him personally, our Master Builder, our Designer, our Creator, how can we be His workmanship? Paul's writing to the Ephesians. He says, we are his workmanship. And if we do not allow Jesus to work on us, how will he ever be able to equip us for the good works? He can't work through us until he's worked in us. And so notice the result of that time that Paul gave to spending with Jesus. It was a fruitful time, though it did take time. You know, he had to give up his his plans for a little while, for three years. Saul, number one, grew in strength. He confounded the Jews in Damascus. He took what they thought they knew about God and he called it to question. He stirred them up to the point where they were like, maybe we need to go back and check. And then Saul proved to them that Jesus is in fact the Messiah that their scriptures predicted would come. Because the Jewish people knew that there was a Messiah that was foretold in the Old Testament. They were looking for him at the time that Jesus showed up. But because Jesus didn't look like they thought he would, they missed him. They thought that Jesus... You know, for Paul to preach this gospel and to come along and say, hey, that Messiah that the Old Testament talked about, he came. And they're like, well, wait a minute. He couldn't have come because Israel is still under captivity of Rome politically. We still don't have rule over our own country. We don't have dominion. We can't do capital punishment legally. So what do you mean the Messiah came? He was supposed to take over and become our king. So for Paul to come and preach the gospel and say that Messiah you were looking for, he came, he, uh, he healed people, he prayed for people, he dwelt among the, those that were lowly, and then he died, but then he rose from the dead. They're like, okay, we heard that he rose from the dead, but the people that said that were kind of questionable. They were all fishermen and liars and like they weren't really that great of people. So how can this be true? And Saul says, it it is. And then he shows them in scripture from the Old Testament. This is the one that God said would come. And it confounds them. But notice the result of him explaining to them that Jesus was the Messiah. It doesn't go well for him. Verse 23. After many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. He shares with them the good news. He gives them the truth from the scripture. And their thought is, this guy's a nut. We need to kill him because now he's following Jesus. This is an epidemic. We've got to stop. We've got to kill this cancer that is Christianity. And so they wanted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. See, there was a big gate. This is uh, kind of the idea of an old kingdom. Not a moat, but a big uh, fence around the whole area of these towns. And in order to protect what was inside the town, they have these big walls. And so the, way, the only way to get in and out of the town was the gates. These uh, Kind of like a, a fence. But it was a gate that you would, everyone would go in and out and they would have people sitting there watching what was going on. Well, these people that wanted to kill Paul, they were like, hey, if we want to kill him, we've got to just watch for him to go in and out of the city. He's not going to stay here forever if he knows we want to kill him. And so they watched day and night. And then the disciples, knowing this was going on, took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. So Saul's basically going to retreat. He's going to leave. He's getting out of Dodge. You know, so there's a bounty on his head. And so the only way he knows to deal with it is to get out of there. Now, let me ask you, how do we know when it's our time to fight or our time to to, to flee? Because oftentimes I think that my only response is, well, I need to stay and fight because Jesus stayed and fight, fought. But it seems here that Paul recognized that this was the time to flee, not only because he knew his calling was to the, the Gentiles, we'll find that out later, but also because the disciples that had come to know him, they were like, dude, you got to get out of here. And I believe that they did this because, uh, I wrote down here, if Paul had stayed in Damascus or if the disciples were caught helping Paul escape, there may have been an onslaught of widespread persecution against Christianity. But since they were not caught, that is, they would be able to remain in Damascus Until the dust settled and continued to teach about Jesus while they were there. Rather than causing a big stir and causing them to be all sent out of that town, they said, Paul, if we just get you out of here quietly, we are from here. We can continue to witness to people one-on-one. And then God can build up an underground church, basically. Kind of like in China. That's what's happened. Not all the Christians there are like preaching on the street corner because they'll be put to death for their faith. So rather, they they talk to people one-on-one and they have this following. And when all the American Christians were sent out back in the 70s or the 80s, whenever that happened, basically there was a cultural revolution. All the Christians, the American Christians and the European Christians had to leave. And they thought, well, what's going to happen to all the believers in China? What's going to happen? Well, basically what happened was all those that had the faith shared with them continued in it, even though they had to be quiet about it. They witnessed to their family members and their co-workers quietly. And as they did, God built up an underground church that grew faster with them witnessing to them than it ever did with those foreigners coming in. They were able to receive those that were from them because they weren't trying to change their culture. They were just trying to share Jesus with them. And so Saul, basically knowing his calling, because he had spent time with Jesus, flees Damascus and he goes to Jerusalem. So we'd see that. And in verse 26, it says, When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. He's fleeing, basically, from those that want to kill him, the Jews. He gets to Jerusalem going, Hey, I'll go and be with my people. And he gets there and it says, But they were all afraid of him, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. He he had nowhere to go. Even the Christians that he was now a part of, they wouldn't accept him. But look what happens here. God sends someone to be his encourager. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the, time, in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. So Paul, or Saul, we've been talking about him, he's still called Saul in scripture. God's going to, seems like God changes his name, but Saul... Is, is going back to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, disciples are skeptical that Saul's even really converted. And you can imagine that they have reason to be skeptical. You know, He, he was not a, a cuddly guy. He was known for being a, kind of a, a big, strong bully. And so uh, they're wondering if he was only there to be kind of infiltrated into their group so that when they started talking about Jesus and saying that they followed him, that he's going to turn on them And take him to Jerusalem and put him before the council. So then, this man, Barnabas, and his name literally means son of encouragement, comes along and he lives up to his name by seeing Paul's heart, hearing his testimony, seeing his works, and defending him before the other apostles. Barnabas became a witness to the apostles that Saul indeed was a different guy, he's a new man, he's surrendered to following Jesus. So then he's accepted by the disciples and Saul remained with them in Jerusalem. And as was the case in Damascus, Saul begins to speak boldly. It says there in uh, in verse 28, so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and he disputed against the Hellenists. Those were the Greek speaking Jews, but they attempted, look, to kill him. So once again, Saul's sharing the gospel of Jesus and they want to put him to death. Thanks, guys. I love you. We want to kill you. That sounds fun, right? But when the brethren found out that he was once again had a death threat on his life, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him to Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is where Saul was originally from. They're sending him to a Gentile area. So (laughs) this is a good thing. He's finally getting to where he's supposed to be. God keeps closing the door for him to minister and he ends up at one more place and this is where he's called to be. So the other Christians, when they found out, they took Saul to a nearby town, Caesarea, and then they sent him to Tarsus, his hometown. So let's get some application out of this because we don't want to just go through the story and, and learn the history. We want to, how does this apply to my life? So Saul was, though a few years in, he's still at this point a, a new convert. He's a new Christian. We don't think about it because three to four years is a really long time, right? Not really. Saul had walked against the Lord for many, many more years. Even if he was only 30 years old at this point, which I believe he was older, even if he was only 30 and he got saved when he was 30, he's been walking against the Lord for 30 years and with the Lord for three. I don't know about you guys, but you do the math, he's still gonna have a lot of the tendencies of the old life because he's had more influence from the world than he's ever had with Jesus. So he's got a lot of growing to do. And we see that because he keeps trying to nail a round peg into a square hole. But he'd been a disciple of Jesus for a mere three to four years by this point. We oftentimes think of Paul the Apostle. and We forget where he came from, but he always remembered it. We forget that Saul's walk with the Lord was only possible because God used the disciples that were already there to encourage to protect, to rescue, to warn, and even defend him when he was in his infant stages spiritually. We all too soon forget guys like Ananias that were the first one to say, brother Saul, Jesus who met you on the road to Damascus and knocked you on your hiney, he sent me to encourage you to let you know you're accepted into his family. We often forget about uh, Barnabas who came along and was the first one to go, guys, no, he's really a new creation. He's He's in Christ. He's, he's one of us now. We need to accept him and encourage him because if we don't, he may turn away from the faith. We need to be there with him. We too soon forget about those that lowered him out of Damascus in a basket so he wouldn't be put to death. We too soon forget about uh, the apostles who saw that he had yet again a death threat out of his life and said, hey, um, we see that you want to serve the Lord, but maybe you need to go to Caesarea and we'll send you to the Tarsus. They encouraged him. They said, don't quit just because they want to kill you. Maybe you need to go to a different audience. You know, that was his call. And eventually as these apostles watched Saul and they saw his boldness and they recognized that God had placed on him, they continued to encourage him. He needed the other disciples as much as they needed him. No doubt seeing his zeal and his, his new life in Christ and his strength in the scriptures and his knowledge of who God is, they were spurred on. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17 says, just as iron sharpens iron, so the countenance of the brethren sharpens each other. When we fellowship with one another, it's like if you've ever seen one of those movies where they have the swords and they take them and they go shing, shing before a fight. It's not just so they can make an awesome sound effect. It's so that their swords in the dull spots will be rubbed off because that material will actually cause there to be a sharpening. And in the same way, when we fellowship with other Christians, we're sharpened by one another. We're encouraged, hey, keep walking, keep going, don't give up. If Ananias had disobeyed and ignored God's call to go and meet Paul, though we don't hear much about Ananias later, perhaps Paul would have quit. And uh, if Barnabas does not use the gift that God's given him to be an encourager, And to stand up before the apostles, though it might have caused him to fear a little bit because he was going to be bold before those that were the leaders in the church. If he didn't do that, perhaps Saul would have quit. But they didn't. And because of that, we have a majority of the New Testament. Saul was encouraged, hey, use the gifts that God's given you. And it made a great impact. Many churches were started in the early church because Paul was such a bold and zealous guy. But had these men, though seemingly insignificant, not encouraged him, perhaps he wouldn't have done it. He would have gave up. So I guess my question is, what are the gifts that God has given you? What has God called you to do as part of the body of Christ and as part of reaching a lost and a dying world? I struggle with these questions myself. But if you struggle with these questions, let me encourage you. Find the answers. Spend time with the Lord. He wants to give you those answers. He wants to answer those questions. Are you taking time away from everything else each day to spend with Jesus? You are God's workmanship. And so are you allowing time for him to work on you? To take all the assumptions you've made about him and to, to change him? You know, to get rid of the, the junk, the things that you think are true about him. Are you, are you spending time to Him with him and saying, Lord, is this really true? You will find the greatest joy in your life when you pursue God's purposes for your life as hard or harder than you did pursue the things of this world before you knew Jesus. And, uh, and it'll be for your good and it'll be for his glory. So, you know, oftentimes we look at Paul and we go, well, I'm not as important as him. Or we see a pastor or we see a worship leader or we think about people that serve in church. And we go, well, I don't really have as important as a role as they do. But you do. It's not true at all. You do. And if you don't pursue those goals, not only do uh do you suffer spiritually, not only does your family suffer spiritually, but so does the body of Christ. And so let me encourage you. Just pursue him daily. Ask them, Lord, what's my part? What do I need to be a part? You know? Who do you want me to encourage today? I've thought about that a lot because you know I, I think my biggest purpose, not only in the church, but at work is to Find those that, who know the Lord. Maybe they don't go to church with me. Maybe they don't believe the same way I do about Jesus, but, but they're trying to pursue the Lord. My job is to encourage them. I'm supposed to be a Barnabas at U.S. Tool to find the believers and to encourage them. And what's God called you to? It could be something as simple as that. So let's pursue those things and, and see what God does with what little we have to offer Him. Father, thank you so much that you pursue us. Thank you that you desire to use us. But Lord, more than that, thank you that you are the reason for all that we do. Thank you for the testimony of Saul and when you uh, broke him and you humbled him on the road to Damascus. Thank you for all of those that you surrounded him with, all of the seemingly insignificant people that played a major role in his growth and maturity in his faith in you. Thank you that the fruit of that was uh, so many letters to so many different churches in the new testament and lord thank you that we still get to draw from the wisdom that he had from knowing you personally lord thank you that it's christ in us that's the hope of glory thank you that we have a message of hope to share with those around us lord help us to know who we are in christ help us to recognize that you're calling us to something more and lord help us to recognize that more than that we're yours we're your workmanship lord have your way in us Continue to grow us and Lord, uh, as you do that, Lord, may you get praise. May we praise you for saving us. May we praise you for changing us. Lord, thank you for giving us a new heart, a heart to worship you. And Father, if there's anybody here this morning that does not know you, has yet to surrender their life to you, I pray that they would just uh, finally give in to you, tapping on their shoulder and, and showing them that they need a savior. And I pray that they would receive you, that they would recognize that this life is more than just about um, getting money and spending it and doing whatever, but it's about serving you, worshiping you, and Lord, seeing what you've called us to as people. Lord, we are your workmanship. So Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with a song.